Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Everyone has a story, and on our podcast, we love to amplify the voices of those women whose stories are moving and meaningful and very compelling. I can guarantee you today's guest measures up. Uh, Rika Nakazawa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Susan. It's such a joy, a privilege, and true pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I know a little bit about you. You are one remarkable woman. I don't think that the word no is in your vocabulary. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell others a little bit about yourself? So I have a little bit of a different background. I grew up in the international school in Tokyo. My mother is German and my father is Japanese. And right off the bat, I have to say the fact that they met and got married and had kids alone was the triple lottery for me. I don't need to buy a lottery ticket anymore. The fact that I'm here is, is a winning ticket, primarily because when my parents met, my mother was 19 going on 20 and my dad was 36, 37 years old. And there was that age gap between them. And then on top of that, of course, Japan is quite the homogenous society, especially back then. And my father being the Asian one, usually in biracial couples, you will see that the woman is Asian and the, and the, and the husband or the man is white. My case, it was uh, now he's a little older Japanese gentleman, and my mother is this tall, looming uh, German woman, and and so the, the the age difference and the just the size difference, and then of course the cultural difference and the the tendency of the Japanese side of the family not always being welcoming of, of foreign family members was also something that actually my mother had to experience before my brother was born. So the fact how they met is a whole nother story that could be a whole nother podcast, but the fact that they met and they, that they went on to get married and have children and for me to be here is, is definitely one of the, for the first experience of my life and probably the luckiest. I have to say, when you started that story, I just assumed um, my mind just went to the place that your your father was German and that your mother was Asian. And I think there's some unconscious bias there, just assuming that the young Asian women and the strong older German man, it also could be because my grandmother is German and came from very strong, uh, outspoken German you know, roots. So I don't know why my mind went there, but I assumed wrongly, right? Exactly. And 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 then from there, the privileged life that I had the the privilege of leading is that I got to go to the international school in Tokyo, which gave me an education that I took for granted at the time. But when I was applying for universities in the US and I came to the US on a student visa. The work that I did in high school actually got me a year's worth of credit at Princeton. So I had the chance to do advanced standing at Princeton University, meaning I could skip a grade because of the work that I did in high school. That's so in many crazy. ways, I, I was born not necessarily to a privileged family, but a, a, certainly a, a fortunate situation and in and a, and a really privileged one from a school perspective that was able to give me a head start, so to speak, when I came to the States for college. And of course, at that time when it came to the States was when the internet was first starting to make its forays into the world. And hence, from a timing perspective, once again, I was it was pure dumb luck that I ended up at Sony online at the interactive group at Sony Pictures Entertainment Club, Columbia TriStar Interactive in the early days, days of the internet. 
So my first internship, which then turned into a full-time job, was working within a startup within a large enterprise called Sony that was looking to really pioneer new ways that the internet was going to drive business for the film and television properties under Columbia TriStar, which at that point had been acquired by, by Sony. So an American establishment that was acquired by a Japanese institution at a time where there was massive digital disruption already afoot, that really became the hallmark of what became the rest of my career in, in technology and its intersection with commercial application and business. I was just going to talk about, tell us a little more about that intersection. And then I definitely want to weave in uh, the fact that you've done so much, you should be so proud. What maybe was your proudest professional accomplishment or has it happened yet? Uh -huh, that's it. I, <laughs> maybe I like the way you say that, Susan. Has it happened yet? I would like to think that there will be many to come, I hope. No I, doubt, no doubt. <laughs> and, and so, and also I think the piece that I will also want to mention here where my roots come back to where I am today is that I grew up a tomboy, went to the international school and any of my friends from school that are listening to this will attest to this, but I grew up a tomboy. So I was always felt like when I was hanging out with my guy friends in sports, I was an active sports athlete in school as well. I was always just one of the guys. And so for the early part of my career, I was pretty blind and had a lot of unconscious bias myself as it relates to gender, genderization within the workplace and especially having been a woman in tech and especially having been a woman in tech in Silicon Valley since 2006. And so in many ways, there were ceilings and challenges, but I, I never quite saw them. And therefore I never quite discerned them for my, for my colleagues or my peers that were in the same boat as me. And it wasn't until I attended a session, uh, Princeton had their first women alumni conference in 2008, 2009. Can't remember the years they are kind of blurring together at this point. And that's when I attended a session about women in the C-suite. And that was when I had my, my awakening, so to speak. But as I went through my career and with where I am today, having the baseline of the intersection of technology and business being my, my basic calling card, but also throughout that weaving in elements of working for a large scale enterprise, whether that was Sony or Accenture, American Express uh, and, and Arison, which eventually got bought by Capgemini, NVIDIA uh, to a handful of startups, because when you live in Silicon Valley, you, you kind of need to do that tour work for startups. So I've, I've really had the chance, as you say, to, to really play a lot of stations on this radio. And I think that my most proudest professional accomplishment to date is actually launching my own venture, Board Seat Meet. And we haven't achieved what I wanna achieve with it yet, but I think getting it off the ground and getting some initial capital to fund the development of the prototype and the MVP, and then now to where we are with the open beta, and being able to bring alongside on our journey, eight, nine interns from elite schools like Yale, Harvard, Wellesley. So these, this next generation, Generation Z that, that are at a, such an extraordinary juncture of their young lives where they don't know what's on the other side of coronavirus and having them, giving them the opportunity to not just intern with us, a very unique social impact venture at Board Seat Meet, but because of the nature of what we do at the age of 18, 19, 20, I'm giving these young, young, young adults essentially access to senior leaders like yourself yeah. that we're talking to. 
And so just knowing how much that could potentially pay it forward and to my interns who will be listening to this, you better pay it forward. Um, <laughs> I, have to, I have to say that that's, that to this date is my proudest professional accomplishment that is yet to be written out. So folks, I understand fully um, her charge and what she's trying to accomplish. And I believe in it 1000%. And I think she lives it, right? You, you definitely walk the talk. It's beautiful what you're trying to do. Why don't you explain a little more about board seat meet to the listeners? Sure. So the concept is pretty simple. There, there are a lot of organizations that are working on diversity and leadership. And of course, those organizations are ones that we want to partner with. And what we're doing at board seat meet that's different. And again, this goes back to the fact that I've been a technologist my entire career is that I kind of took a look at the landscape and thought, okay, there's obviously a problem. There's obviously a problem that is too long-standing. It's too slow. The progress is just too slow. What can technology do to help accelerate it, impact it in a different way, take a different crack at the bat? And then I had come across a Harvard Business Review article that talked about network orchestration models, which is essentially what Airbnb and Uber and Upwork and all these other two-sided marketplace platforms that have been enabled by technology and the trust factor of building a community. And so I thought, okay, given that one of the biggest challenges for people getting access to the boardroom is about social capital, which has historically been where you build those warm relationships of advocacy and sponsorship on golf courses, in cigar rooms, in poker rooms, out drinking with your buddies. I think the visual that might be coming to mind is what has historically been older white men meeting professionally, but in social situations, and then they become advocates for each other. And I thought, okay, so we should be able to make an impact on that and make it easier for underrepresented groups to have access to that social capital through the power of technology. So essentially what we built at the core of it is a platform that makes it much easier for board members to provide their availability on the platform in a very seamless way. And for candidates to search for board member by geography or by industry, find board members that have made available time on their calendar for a half an hour video meeting and essentially make a meeting request for that. And because our platform is just focused on leadership and governance, instead of having to field a number of different calls from referrals or LinkedIn messages or this, that, and the other, and a lot of going back and forth that is hugely inefficient and board members just don't have time for it, they can easily see the 350 meeting requests that have come for their October 10th at 10 a.m. and essentially filter by expertise or by industry or other filters for the candidate, look at the candidate's profile that's relevant to board experience and accept a request that comes from a candidate and our platform automatically locks that on the board member and the candidate's calendar as a meeting. And through the platform, you can have a chat function. So nobody has to give their personal email or any other contact information in the beginning where you can just communicate through the platform. And what we believe and what's been tested out through our initial uh, closed beta is that a 30 minute meeting between two people over a video conference, especially with coronavirus having really accelerated that paradigm, two people can have a very meaningful conversation and the underrepresented groups, be they women or people of color or LGBTQ community, whatever underrepresented group it is, to be able to have that connection with the board member on the other side. And for the board member, they don't have to travel anywhere. They don't have to go back and forth or their EA may be the one setting up their profile and their availability on the platform. But it's as simple as that. And the way that I describe it is it's, it's almost like a LinkedIn meets open table. 
but in a way that's very targeted towards democratizing access to board members for the underrepresented groups and for board members to finally not have the excuse to say, well, there aren't enough qualified people because they are. It's just a matter of how do you get access to them and how do you do that in a very targeted and filtered and discreet way that makes it easier for, for everybody. You know, I wanna say there's so much to unpack here. It's all so great what you're doing. The golf, um, the golf club, uh, country club analogy is so powerful. I mean, look at all the bias there. You know, we know my, my father was part Jewish. And when he was invited to a particular country club, they said, don't put that on the application. And he said, forget it. I'm going to go build my own 13,000 square foot home with an airstrip and my own plane and my own pool and my own tennis club in the back because he was discriminated against for being Jewish. And the fact that those clubs often, at least back in the day, it's probably not that way today, but back in the day, those clubs were open to only those who look and sound and act and come from the same places as you, right? So, so much affinity bias. Yes. What I do in my work is I teach a lot about muted group theory, how the creators of the language benefit mightily from the mission, vision, strategy, the history, this, you know, the plans, the running of the company, the corporate governance. But those who are not white males, they struggle to navigate within those operating systems. So what you're doing and what I'm doing is we are crashing down the operating systems, not teaching women and other minorities to speak and act and do white male, right? So I love this. You're, the, the phrase you use is so powerful, democratizing board service, right? So that's amazing. And I love what you're doing. I want to be involved as much as I possibly can. I support this 1000%. Um, Would love that. You, yeah. Of course you have had, um, I'm sure nothing was given to you. It wasn't easy, um, but you have had a wonderful, it seems, path, right? There are many mountain, many paths to the mountaintop. That's what it is. Many paths to the mountaintop. Yours sounds very incredible. Who maybe inspired you or was a mentor along the way? There were a number of mentors that I had in, at different capacities in my, in, my, in my life, right? And I think the formative years of high school are sometimes underestimated and the, they come out later in your life and you start to understand how everything kind of weaves together. It started with my cross country coach, Steve Tootle, when I was in high school. I was, uh, I was your classic scholar athlete and he really had a way of demonstrating how much he cared about the students and, and, the, and, the, and the team members. And he had a way of encouraging me without me wanting to push back because I kind of was a kid that if you push me too hard, I had a tendency to push back and just want to do things my way. Uh, so he, 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 because my father, and that's the other person in my life, right? My father, ironically, he was the opposite where my father was such the workaholic trying to provide for the family and paying for three kids to go to private school in Tokyo was now I understand as an adult, how, how much of a handful that was. So my father was never around, not because he was negligent, but because he was always working and uh, traveling internationally. Uh, but that also was an inspiration for me because it really taught me the ethic of hard work and taught me the ethic of dedication and, and service, right, to your family or to the people that you care and love. But then when we pivot to the career, 
path. I, I one thing I have to admit, Susan, is that when I when I talk to people about mentors that they've had, I'm I'm a little bit on the jealous side because I've never really actually had a mentor mentor somebody that really crafted me to get to a certain level. At the same time, I take total responsibility for that because a mentorship is a two-way street, as I understand it now, being in a role of where I'm mentoring individuals. Um, but all that being said, I think the inspiration, the inspiration that I've had from people in my life have been from people like Julie Abrams recently, right? Julie is the founder of How Women Lead and also How Women Invest. And she at least starting from the Bay Area, she has been an incredible icon of somebody who is so committed and so passionate and has a way of grace in every conversation that she has, where she's probably the first person that I've met that you hear about these people, like Bill Clinton's described this way, but the people that when they're talking to you, you are all that matters, right? Right, right. And and she, in my in my direct experience, has been one of the few that is really like that. And, and she's been an inspiration. And there's been other people from my Accenture days, Dave Rich, who's on my board at Board Seat Meet, has been uh, an inspiration to me constantly. Every time I talk to him, it's just jet fuel that I get into my system. And so there have been various people and, and I feel, and by the way, which doesn't, which isn't mean to say that I won't yet still find a mentor, I, I think, I'm a student of life. I, I believe oh. that I don't think I'm ever going to retire and I have Japanese genes in my system. So maybe I'll live to 110. I don't know, <laughs> but you know, I, I still, I, I feel like once I kind of come up for air from board seat meet, I would love to find that mentor and my mentor could be, a, a, you know, the younger generation, right? Yes. It doesn't have to be somebody who's older than you. It could be the younger generation who's finally going to tell me why TikTok is so fascinating. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, so, so, and here I am, right. I'm like, consider myself such a digerati and I'm here saying what I don't understand. <laughs> so, You're awesome. You're so great. I want to say, I do believe you are a universal learner and I believe that you will, uh, remain, you know, that global worldview that you have will remain with you for all your days. And I too believe we can learn from the younger, uh, generation. Is it, I, I, like you, did not have a formal mentor, and I regret that. I don't know why I didn't. Perhaps I, like you, was uh, I was very um, driven and sure. I never suffered imposter syndrome, which apparently I'm the outlier. Um, but it made <laughs> it made for a lot of um, tightrope bias. You know, if she's too friendly, she's not competent. If she's not friendly enough, she's too aggressive. She's a B, right? So. Right. I, I get it when you're charging your path and charting your course and making your way, there are people who don't understand your courage and so they try to disrupt. And then there are those who might understand your courage but consider themselves competition. Whereas I don't feel that way. I feel like collaboration is the name of the game, especially for women, which is a, a nice segue to my next question, frankly. How do you believe we could lift one another up or support other women in business? I, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to collaboration, especially for women. I think, again, it, it's hard to make broad brush statements, but at the root of it, I think from a communication and collaboration and orchestration, there are certain skills that may be inherent for, for women, whether that's nurture or nature, I, I don't know. I don't have children, but I can say that my whole career has been about 
in engaging with different groups. And that has partly to do with one of the challenges that I had when I came to the States for College when I was at Princeton was I didn't know what path I wanted to go down. I was very heavy on math and science. I was a total geek nerd in school, but at the same time, I took majors in English and fine arts. And so this left brain, right brain thing has, has definitely been instrumental for me to be a cross-pollinator by nature. And being a cross-pollinator means how do you work with or reach across the aisle of yeah. various sorts and, and really find ways to, to work together. And ultimately, when you're competitive, which I am, uh, it, the only way you're going to you're going to be able to move ahead is to be able to is to lift other people up and specifically as it relates to women because there's just such a delta, especially living in a little bit of the bubble that you and I are Susan here in the US yes there's so much that needs to be done whether it's women in the boardroom women in C suite women in different functions and roles in engineering this is a ton but if you step out of our bubble it's just astounding. How, how much of a delta there is in other ways in other parts of the world. And not, not to make a judgment call about it, but because in some cultures, that's what they want. You, you talk to women in Japan and there was a survey done, I don't remember when, and I don't have the right citation with me, but roughly speaking, it goes something like this. When women were asked whether they wanted to take a more senior role, that senior role was turned down because they would look at the lifestyle of the more senior role, which it, which involved men going out drinking after work till two o'clock in the morning and never seeing their kids. And they're like, I don't want that lifestyle. And so they would turn it down. So it's not a judgment call in some cases where it just is what it is. And some people are just happier that way. But, but at the same time, but at the same time, I think that when we do take our head out of our, our sand, which I think we all have the responsibility to do whenever we can and in our own ways, is to look and see just how much kind of like a lever, right? A little bit of adjustment on your end can make a huge movement on the other side. So you have to take the time out to, to, to do that because it's the butterfly effect, right? The, the, yes. the butterfly that flaps its wings on one side, the kind of impact that it's gonna have on the other side can be amazing. And maybe for you, it's just about lifting your index finger versus trying to lift both arms up into the air. And there are plenty of opportunities to do that. And with digital and with the way that coronavirus has connected us all in a new paradigm of this interface, there's just so much more that we can do around collaboration, around communication, around inspiration and creativity and, and how that lifts the tide for all ships. Oh my God. Rika Nakazawa for president, 2020. <laughs> Seriously. I'm on a green, I'm here on a green card. So I <laughs> I'm willing to, you know, and, and we've overlooked so much in the last many years. I, I'm willing to overlook that. Um, wow. You're so inspirational. I love the index finger or wave your arms in the air analogy. Um, I love that. Yeah. So we self-select, of course, because so many women believe we can't change the operating system. It is what it is. And we don't fit into that. I'm saying we can, and you're saying we can, you're saying we can by the butterfly effect, any bigger little thing you do makes a change. So, um, yeah. And yeah. Just, just wanted to call out one thing, right. Is that I, um, so I had to learn a little bit of this because in school, I mentioned I was a scholar athlete, but I did the independent sports. I was the cross country runner. Yeah the two mile track runner and a swimmer. I can but see that. <laughs> as, 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 but as you get older, you realize that the adage, right? It's an African proverb. If you wanna go fast, go alone. If you wanna go far, go together. 
And I, I always wanted to go that. and I always wanted to go fast, but fast isn't anything if you don't go far. And the only way you can go far is to is to do it together. And then of course, experientially, as you work together, you realize the magic and the moments that really are going to be the things that at the end of the day are what you think back on, right? When you're when you're when we're all, I don't know, sitting on in our rocking chairs, admiring some some scenery <laughs> that isn't the, no, the screen I'm anymore. I'm actually seriously welling up because that has been a huge life lesson for me. The speed of Susan has not always been for everyone, and I, like you, was very much a solo person versus a, a you know. And now my whole life is about collaboration and lifting others and coming together. So um, you just described something I never even focused on or thought about, but wow. That is something I learned over the years. And now I practice that. And, um, you know, the go far versus go fast. That's so beautiful. What mm -hmm. a powerful analogy. And I, I, there's a little bit of me and you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait. We're going to work on some stuff together, right, Susan? So that's gonna <laughs> yeah. And we'll go far together. Yes, we uh, will. We, we, will. Might even go, we might even go faster than most, but because... <laughs> because because the speed of Rika is, you know, that's, that's incredible. All that you've done in your, your, your life so far. And there's so much more for you to do. I know it. Um, I can't wait to be on that ride. Why? Right. The, the wild ride, the wild ride. Speaking of wild rides, did you ever have a challenge or a setback that you had to overcome? And if you're willing to share more, how? I, you know, it was, I mentioned earlier about coming to the States and going to Princeton and I had that moment to skip a year and I just didn't know what it is I wanted to do that the mountain analogy you mentioned earlier is one that I brought up where in high school I was hiking up this mountain ferociously and I get to the top, go, you know, got into Princeton advanced standing status and all of a sudden I was looking at this mountain range and having no clue where I wanted to go next because everything was kind of metered out for me from a compass perspective. I just needed to get good grades, do well in like the whole thing. Right. So here I was and, and feeling quite overwhelmed. And on top of that, I felt that I was totally fine at the age of 17, 18, going from Tokyo, Japan to Princeton, New Jersey by myself and showing up and leaving behind my, my bubble and my ecosystem and, and everything behind me. And I think that really impacted me in, in ways that I didn't realize. And that, overachiever in me had to, had to, had to, had to, what is it, what do they say? Um, uh, there's a phrase that somebody said the other day. I, I, if you can re-record this part, um, Susan, um, I'm just trying to remember what it was. Anyway, I'll okay, start over. Time and yeah. About it. And um, so, we put and, and everything so, in the blog, so you can send it to me later and we'll write it. We put it in the blog cast. Okay. That, that'd be great. So, so I, when I, when I decided that I needed to take a break, it was really a departure from everything that I learned about what you're supposed to do, be on the straight and narrow and taking a leave of absence from school was never within my realm of thought. And it was introduced to me as a, as a concept by, uh, I was taking theater and other courses at Princeton. And my theater professor was saying, why don't you just take a leave of absence? And for the first time I was permitting myself to take a break from this ferocious ride. Of, of high school and into an Ivy League college. And so when I took that break and I, I, took, I took the break and when I decided to go back to school, I was already on the West Coast. And so I essentially did half my college at Princeton and the other half at UCLA. 
And that was a, it wasn't a setback. It was just a challenge for me to get out of the groove of that record of being the classic overachiever and then realizing that nobody was writing my rule book. Nobody else was writing my playbook. I needed to take a moment, really understand what I was made of and really what my whys, Simon Sinek does a great yeah. talk on why, and really recalibrate what, what I wanted to do, where I wanted to go. And even deciding not to go back to the Ivy League was a little bit of that shift that, that I needed to enact in myself of not doing things to, to, the, to the letter of, the, of what I had thought was law. And so I think that was one of the biggest challenges was just get, going through that paradigm shift. Yeah, and yeah, and, and then from there, I don't, funny enough, but from that point, it's not that I, I became less um, oriented around achieving, accomplishing things, but it was more around, uh, ironically, how can I embrace challenges in a way that was gonna be more impactful, right? Rather than just checking a box and saying, right. yeah, I won. It was more like, what's the challenge I can take on that is going to have the most impact for the most people? And so yeah, that just that's so indicative of of what we thought was the way to do things versus the, the way we should do things. Right. So that's spiritual maturity as well. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. And so when you say biggest challenges, I'm, I'm pretty sure that after that moment at the age of 20, there were many big challenges that I've come across in my life, but I didn't see them as challenges. They were kind of par for the course of what right. I needed to do. And even the setbacks, sure, I've had, I've had many, many, many setbacks, um, but it's not, about, it's not about dwelling on the setbacks, but thinking about how you respond to them. So, um, so those setbacks have been in many ways pivots for me to learn to be better and learn to give more and learn to open myself up for new ways that I could be part of the fabric of, of the community around me and the larger enterprise or startup that I'm, that I'm with at the time. I so wanna pick your brain offline about a couple of questions I've been jotting down while you're talking. Um, uh, so, so now's the time, everyone who listens to my show knows that now's the time that I either ask a surprising fact about you or I pull the wild card question from my magic box of 144 meaningful questions. <laughs> All right. Which one do you prefer? I'll, I'll do the wild card question. And I'm not surprised. You're very courageous. Interesting. Some people have said, no, no, no. Um, this is great. All right. So I need some background music for this part. <laughs> oh, okay. So this is, this is not... I don't, well, I, I'm not going to judge. It might be hard for you. Um, it would not be hard for me. Which object or objects would you save if your house were on fire? Wow. Interesting question considering where we live and work, right? So sad sort of question considering all the 8,200 fires in Northern California or in California right now. Well, do my, do my husky... Uh, husky wolves count <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i would think those are family right so yeah. we'll assume yeah. that that you'd grab your family members first i would grab my family members and then of course my phone because it's the way it has pictures on there is <laughs> how i connect with the world around me it's um, interesting that you say that because if you'd asked this question 
uh, 15 years ago or so, people would say my photo albums. So basically that's the same thing. It's just now we keep everything digitally. That's right. A beautiful yeah. answer. I think that's beautiful. When you first say your phone, people probably think, oh my gosh, she's too connected. But when you explain it's because where all your pictures are and memories, that's so beautiful. Wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's exactly, it's memories and, and different, you know, it's, it's how we stay engaged with the world around us right now. So, um, you know, and, and yeah, the, my photos are all in the cloud. It's, it's, a, it's a window to the cloud at the end of the day, the phone. Right. I would so, grab my phone too. <laughs> I yeah. grab my cat and my phone. <laughs> your cat and your phone. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you one last question because I'm sure people are going to want to learn more about you if they want to reach out to you directly. How do they do that? Oh, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I think I'm one of the couple of names, Rika Nakazawa there. Fun, fun little side story about 15 years ago, maybe somebody asked me if I had Googled myself. This is when Google was first coming out and people were Googling themselves and seeing what showed up. I was like, no, I didn't Google myself. And they're like, you might want to Google yourself. So I Googled myself and Rika Nakazawa at the time was a, a porn star in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> so had, been I, busy. <laughs> I, I had to work on my SEO there for, for the real, real, real Rika. Oh, I shouldn't say that. She's real too. Um, about doing so, it all. <laughs> or you can reach out to me at Rika, uh, R-I-K-A at boardseatmeet, all one word.com. Wonderful. I can't wait to see more of you and what you do, because I'm going to tell you, we're ready. We're ready for what you're doing, whatever I can do in my, uh, ne my network or circle can do to help you or support you or make it happen in the way that you dream of it happening, please don't hesitate to ask or reach out. I'm super excited for you and I'm so honored to know you. Likewise, thank you so much, Susan, for this opportunity. I can't wait to hear from listeners of your podcast and I cannot wait for you and I to go far, go fast and, and make a difference in this wild, wild world that we're in together. You bet, you bet, I'm thrilled. All right, folks, have a great day. Thank you for listening in. And Rika, thank you for being here. Honestly, you know, if, if I could, I, I would vote for you for POTUS. <laughs> You're so wonderful. Thanks, Susan. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.